Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we are going to be continuing our theme of censored films with the 1955 Otto Preminger film, The Man with the Golden Arm. Once again, one, two, three, four... Frank Sinatra stars as Frankie Dealer Machine, a recovering drug addict who is just returning to his old Chicago neighborhood after time in prison where he received treatment. He stops by a bar where he's greeted by his old friend, a hustler named Sparrow. He's also greeted by his former dealer, Louie, who tries to get him to use again. Frankie refuses the offer and heads home. He sees his wife, Zosh, who is, by all appearances, wheelchair-bound due to an injury to her spinal cord, which she suffered in a car accident caused by Frankie's drunk driving. She asks him when he plans to return to work as a card dealer for Schwiefka, a man who runs an illegal card game. Frankie says he learned to play drums in prison and wants to pursue a career as a musician instead. Sasha is skeptical, but Frankie brushes her off and sets up an appointment with a contact of his who books big bands. Frankie is picked up by the police on charges of shoplifting, as he's wearing a suit Sparrow had stolen and given to him. While in jail, he's approached by Schwiefka, who offers to pay Frankie's bail in exchange for Frankie returning to work for him. Left with little choice, Frankie acquiesces. Frankie tries to stay clean, but is bombarded with stressors. Sash is dismissive of his potential music career and holds her injury over his head. Schwiefka hounds Frankie to deal more card games, which he agrees to in order to pay for Zosh's medical treatment. An old girlfriend, Molly, who Frankie really wants to be with, is seeing an unsupportive alcoholic and seems skeptical of Frankie's changed nature. He also hasn't received a call about the audition that he was promised. Frankie once again begins to use to deal with all the strain. He eventually gets the opportunity to audition for a big band, but is manipulated into dealing a marathon card game the day before and gets no chance to sleep. He runs to Louis to get a fix, but has no money, and Louis refuses to give him anything. Frankie strikes Louis over the head and searches the apartment for drugs, but finds nothing. He shows up to the audition, exhausted, nervous, and in withdrawal. He bombs the audition and leaves without saying a word. Louis goes looking for Frankie at his apartment. He opens the door and finds Zosh, who is standing with no impairments. He laughs at her and says he is going to tell everyone her secret. She chases him, begging him not to tell anyone she can walk. In the scuffle, she inadvertently pushes him off the landing, killing him. The police believe Frankie is responsible for the murder, and Frankie goes into hiding at Molly's apartment. He asks her to help him get clean so that he can speak to the police and stand trial, and she does. After sobering up, he goes back home and tells Zosh that he's going to leave her. She is outraged and begs him to stay, getting up to follow him, just in time for the police to arrive. They all see that she can walk, and the police realize who is responsible for Louis' murder. In a panic, Zosh runs and, with nowhere to go, throws herself out of the window to her death. Frankie walks away from the apartment with Molly, leaving Sparrow and the rest behind. So, Monica, what'd you uh, think of this film? 
Well, you know, this is the second Sinatra movie that you've chosen. And if I didn't know better, I think you were a fan. <laughs> um, but no, I enjoyed it. It was good. Well, uh, it turns out I am halfway a fan because I was really surprised by how much I liked Frank Sinatra's performance here. I thought he was really great. Yeah, same, same. And I guess uh, for the record, the previous Frank Sinatra film we covered was Ocean's Eleven. And you can see that episode for how I felt about his performance there. First off, let's talk a little bit about some of the production and general information about the film. So this was directed by Otto Preminger, who is a really heavy hitter in film from the 1930s all the way to the 70s. Uh, His first film was released in 1931, and his last film was released in 1979. Uh, So he had a really extensive career. He's probably most well-known for, in addition to this film, the films Advising Consent and Anatomy of a Murder. And those two pictures are especially famous specifically for the fact that they tackled controversial and taboo subjects that weren't traditionally covered in Hollywood films up to that point. Anatomy of a Murder deals with a murder, obviously, as well as a rape accusation. And Advising Consent deals with a government official, I believe it's a congressman, and his gay affair that he tries to keep covered up. Do you know what years those were, roughly? Okay, so Advising Consent was 1962. Anatomy of a Murder was 1959. So this is a pretty... This this is like the big period that Preminger is known for. So towards, uh, towards the end of his career, his films started to uh, perform not as well, both uh, in terms of box office gross as well as critically. Uh, crit- critics turned their noses up at his later pictures. One particularly infamous film from him called Hurry Sundown was made essentially to tackle racism and race relations in the American South and was especially maligned by critics at that period for being racist and tone deaf um, and also for casting Michael Caine as a white Southerner, which is, I've not seen this film, but that is truly a perplexing choice. I think we've talked a little bit here about directors and kind of higher up creative types within Hollywood and the the film industry who are, and perhaps is a generous way of characterizing it, but who are not especially kind to their actors, co-workers, colleagues. And I believe this is also true of Otto Preminger. Peter O'Toole, who worked with him on a couple of films, mentioned that he thought Preminger was a bit of a bully he mentioned that in, in his autobiography that came out in the 90s, I believe. And also, apparently, Adam West and Burt Ward uh, especially didn't like him uh, because Preminger played Mr. Freeze in the 1960s uh, Batman television show. And apparently, he was difficult to work with and was not especially co- cooperative with his fellow actors. And also, this would perhaps seem a more tabloid-esque point, but I think it's very relevant to the film here. Preminger had multiple affairs while he was married to his first wife, Marion Mill. And by all accounts, he did not, he didn't really take any effort to hide these affairs from her. 
Uh, so he was uh, not faithful and pretty open about it. And it was not a situation where they had an open relationship. I believe this was uh, humiliating to Miss Mill, his first wife. And also, specific to this film, he apparently didn't really have that much interest in the source material, which was a novel by the novelist Nelson Algren. But became interested when he saw it as an opportunity to violate the production code authorities rule against showing drug use in film. So we'll be talking a little bit about what the production code authority is uh, and how some of that works later on in the episode. So the novel uh, by Nelson Algren, there were actually a, a tremendous number of changes made to it for the benefit of the film. Algren was pretty famously unhappy with this interpretation of his material. He actually tried to sue Preminger and uh, United Artists, the studio that produced the film, over the use of uh, the phrase, a film by Otto Preminger, in the opening titles, I think he found it personally offensive because it was his material and it was it was so drastically changed. Uh, but ultimately, the lawsuit went nowhere because he ran out of money before uh, before it was able to to be completed. So, a little information on Algren: he was held in high regard by Thomas Pynchon, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Don DeLillo. So, pretty you know literary heavyweights really appreciated his work. But he spent a lot of his life in poverty, and as he his career kind of started to flourish in the 50s and 60s, uh, at least artistically, but unfortunately, he it seems he was never really able to find too much of a market for his work because interest in the U.S. in depictions of poverty and small-time hustlers, that kind of material was no longer that attractive to American audiences because people were more focused on the Cold War, um, as well as the fact that the United States experienced an economic boom in the 50s. Uh, so I think people who were doing better, that obviously didn't apply to all Americans, but many Americans who were benefiting financially didn't really have that much interest uh, seeing kind of the lower class depicted. For a little bit of context, some of the big differences between the novel and the film. First off, the reason Frankie is addicted is a little bit different. So in the film, Frankie has a line where he mentions that like he started using just for kicks uh, and then it spiraled out of control. In the novel, he is actually addicted to morphine as opposed to in the film where they never mention the drug, but it's, it's uh, implied to be heroin. In the novel, he's addicted to morphine and he developed that addiction as a soldier in World War II who got injured and had his uh, received painkillers in the form of morphine. Another pivotal point that's different is that Zosh, in the movie, she's this manipulative figure that that is kind of trying to invent this disability to make sure she keeps Frankie kind of under her foot. In the novel, it's more nuanced. And the idea is that she perhaps doesn't have a specific physical disability, but it, it's a kind of a, a psychosomatic situation. So perhaps physically her legs could walk, but she herself does not believe that she can, uh, which I think is a much less cynical take on that character. The last big difference between the novel and the film 
is that it is Frankie as opposed to Zosh who kills Louis and eventually winds up running from the police as he is he is actually guilty of this crime and commits suicide as opposed to the film which kind of uses the character of Zosh uh, as the sacrifice to resolve all of the plot points around Frankie who gets kind of our Hollywood send off you know walking off into the sunset ending maybe this is irrelevant, but both morphine and heroin are opiates. So I suppose that you could still interpret that his heroin addiction is something. Well, although they said in the movie specifically that he just kind of like fell into it, right? Because he was a dealer, a a car dealer, and that was just in the atmosphere. Is that right? Uh, More or less. They never really get that specific. Oh, okay. I, I just noticed, like, they're both opiate drugs. Because as we've seen with, like, the modern opiate crisis, a lot of people will jump from one opiate to another. Like, when they when they can't get, for example, their prescription anymore, then they'll progress to heroin instead. Um, so I was just kind of thinking about how it could have been the case that maybe he had a mor- morphine addiction and then he changed to heroin when he couldn't access morphine anymore. Sure, no, I, I think that's a totally reasonable take. So to talk about the the cast in this film a little bit, because I think this is really a a performance-driven piece. So obviously we have Frank Sinatra in the starring role. He uh, obviously had a big music career that kind of stalled out a little bit in the late 40s. So right around that time, he wound up taking a Vegas residency, which if you know anything about Vegas residencies, like they're great and they're great performers, but a lot of times that's where artists will will go who are kind of no longer top of the pops, like really, really the biggest thing happening in the pop culture world. So that's kind of where he was up until the film From Here to Eternity starring uh Burt Lancaster and I believe Deborah Carr who also starred in Unaffair to Remember which we previously covered on this podcast. So he his star was was revitalized by that picture and he started booking more films and becoming more of a box office draw so from here to eternity was 1953 and this film came out in 1955 so this is kind of the the big comeback period for sinatra so this is in many ways this is kind of his star vehicle i was curious since we did as you mentioned at the at the top we did talk about oceans 11 before what do we think about his performance here compared to that film which came out uh some five years later i believe that was 1960 right um well i agree with you i thought he was a lot better here than in oceans 11 i wonder how much of it can be attributed to the fact that his personal life is so much better fleshed out in this movie In Ocean's Eleven, we have some kind of dim idea that he has, or he's like separated from his wife, right? But we don't, I think when we we talked about that movie in the podcast, we talked about how um, it never kind of resolves the personal issues of the characters. Um, And so it kind of left us hanging. But then also that movie didn't really make up for that lack of detail by being incredible in terms of its depiction of the heist or anything like that so i think at least that's part of it whereas in this movie obviously it's all about his personal struggle and we see a lot of detail right 
Right. As I mean, as I had uh, mentioned before, I was really surprised by how much he was able to do here. And I think just to go back to Ocean's Eleven for a second, I think it's interesting that he's first billed in that picture because what I remember most of that film is Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., who I thought were were far more charismatic. Right. And uh, Sinatra didn't even perform in that movie musically. Both Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. had musical numbers, but Frank Sinatra did not. Um, And the music, the music was one of the only things that I felt was a redeeming quality of that film. Oh, how peculiar. Well, how and this segues into my next point, but uh, neither this film nor Ocean's Eleven actually have Frank Sinatra singing. So here he's a drummer and we see him practice a couple of times and then we see him go to that audition and fail pretty spectacularly. And this was one of the more striking points of the film because I thought, I know something that that tends to happen and I imagine this has been true throughout uh, Hollywood or at least since the star system is that big celebrities who get big picture deals tend to have a lot of say as far as like how they're depicted, right? Like, I think it's not unusual if say a Brad Pitt were to be like, Oh, well, I'm not interested in like, I don't know. The script has me throwing up in a toilet. I don't want people <laughs> to see me like that or some, you know, something like that. So I thought it was, it was uh, really interesting here that really the only exposure we get to Frank Sinatra is not through singing is through drumming and, the main set piece around that is him failing as a musician. I was wondering if you had any, any thoughts on that. Well, I think it's interesting that you point out how it's kind of a contrast with his real life career, which I mean, I know he's in movies, but I think he's more remembered for his musical output. Right. I was thinking more in terms of a plot point, how in the movie, the drumming was supposed to be kind of his escape from his kind of involvement in the underworld. But, you know, Zosh complains about how it's too loud for him to be practicing in their tiny apartment. Um, And that's just another way, that's like a mirror of the bigger ways that she limits him, right? She she says, oh, why don't you deal? Like, that's what we've always done. And it's just like another way that she keeps him from improving his life, basically. Out of curiosity, I, I don't know this. Do you, do you know if uh, Sinatra was in any way a drummer? I don't know that much about him. I haven't heard about him in instruments. Like, I know that he couldn't read music. Um, so, no? <laughs> <laughs> um, also, uh, the other big star of this film is Kim Novak, who I think... Uh, Many of you might know specifically from the Hitchcock film with Jimmy Stewart, Vertigo. Uh, That's where I know her from. I I think that's the only other film I've seen her in. What, I guess, what did you think of her performance and and her character here? Oh, I, I loved her. I think it's interesting how she plays this very mature role, but she's actually so young. She was only 22. Um, in this movie, 21 or 22. Oh, gosh. Yeah. But, you know, like the makeup and the hairstyles and everything really make people look more grown up. Um, actually, recently, um, Olivia de Havilland, most well-known from uh, Gone with the Wind, she recently celebrated, I think, her 104th birthday or something like that. Um, and people were saying how, oh, she's the last 
you know, actress alive from the golden age of Hollywood, but actually Kim Novak is still with us. And then uh, I think a couple of the other um, Hitchcock blondes are, they're kind of a, 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 a like younger micro generation. Yeah. Um, but they're still around. They're sticking to sticking it to Hitchcock by still being alive. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like, I, I think I comment on this a lot where I'm like, oh, so-and-so is still alive. Like, I don't mean to be morbid like that, but I'm just <laughs> like, I feel sometimes I feel really sad about, you know, losing those older generations. And obviously it's a part of life. But so when somebody is still with us, I'm kind of like so happy. <laughs> you know? Oh, right. Well, um, I had that same sensation a few months ago. I finally got around to watching um, Hateful Eight. I think I might have actually mentioned that on this podcast. Uh, anyway, I was watching that, and then it had the title card, like, scored by Ennio Morricone. I was like, holy oh. crap, he's still alive. And now he is not. Oh, I know. So <laughs> I, I had the bummer. same thought. Oh, it was <laughs> such a bummer. It was so sad. Yeah, so I, I thought she did a really great job here i think it's really interesting because people talk about this as being a sinatra novak film but actually frankie's wife zosh is played by eleanor parker and she was actually the the second build uh whereas kim novak was third build so i I guess i just you know speaks to Novak's rising star and I th- I really think in no small part due to her performance in Vertigo which is is phenomenal. So let's talk a little bit about the other players here. So again, Eleanor Parker. Uh, I also wanted to mention Arnold Stang uh, who played Sparrow, who is an actor I wasn't familiar with, uh, but apparently he was this kind of comedic actor like he would play this kind of role pretty frequently the the fast talking like streetwise new york figure and also robert strauss who played schweifka who the entire time i was watching this film i was trying to figure out where i remembered him from and he was a character in uh billy wilder's stalag 17 uh which is a really wonderful film that i hope we get to cover at some point on this podcast but yeah, he didn't have a super, super big role in the film, but uh, I was I was really happy whenever he was on screen. Uh, I think he, he does a really good job of kind of doing that like nefarious but semi-ineffectual pose um, because it, I think that's an interesting acting challenge is to have to try to be intimidating to Frankie but simultaneously be beneath Louie. Right, being a bad guy, mm-hmm. but having not that much power in either direction. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if any any of those actors, or if there were any other roles in the film that were um, interesting or surprising to you. Um, I did enjoy Eleanor Parker as Zosh. I think she was excellent and kind of appropriately pitiable, and also very pretty. By the way. Um, I feel like Kim Novak gets a lot of the attention, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eleanor Parker really uh, swinging for the fences with a lot of these choices. It's interesting because I think that Sinatra is kind of trying to play a slightly more like subdued character, I suppose, until the sequence in which he gets clean, where he, he hams it up a little bit. But it's interesting seeing there, it, 
his scenes with Eleanor Parker because Eleanor Parker is really going over the top with this kind of villainous role. And you would think that would really kind of tip the balance of the scene in one way or the other so that it wouldn't work anymore. But I think she, she really hits the notes perfectly. I also was really impressed with her. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, and this is pretty typical for Hollywood films, uh, but as you had said earlier, Kim Novak was about 22 when this was made. And I believe I, I believe that Eleanor Parker was also in her early to mid-20s, maybe 25 when this came out. And Frank Sinatra was 40. So we kind of, you know, we have a, an older male lead with, with two much younger uh, female romantic interests. Uh, but I thought it actually kind of worked worked out pretty well here because looking at it, like he, he doesn't look tremendously old or anything, but like he, he looks a fair bit older than them. But I kind of interpreted that as being part of, you know, the result of his addiction, which I don't know that that was deliberate, but I think it, it winds up working out better for the, the context of the film. Eleanor Parker would have been about 32 or 33 in this movie. So I know in the movie she she says her age is like 25. Um, the character does, but uh, so she was like 10 or 11 years older than Kim Novak. Oh, um, okay. She looked, uh, she actually looked very young. I, I kind of assumed she and Kim Novak were the same age. She, she looked, I mean, especially for back then, I think she looked pretty good. So I want to talk a little bit about both the music and the cinematography in this film. The score was by Elmer Bernstein, who's a, a very famous film composer. He worked on tons of stuff. Uh, I know he did the 1950s Ten Commandments. Uh, he also did the score to Magnificent Seven and To Kill a Mockingbird. So if you've seen like Golden Age of Hollywood films, you've probably heard one of his scores. And it's really interesting because, and you can check this out, they have the score on Spotify. Uh, a lot of the music here kind of varies between kind of the, the more traditional film score, kind of the big string sections, and then these other pieces that are very jazz- driven and specifically very percussive, uh, which I thought was especially resonant given the context of the film, uh, like the some of the sequences in which Frank Sinatra goes to use drugs and follows Louie, and we start hearing that kind of fast-paced, anxious jazz score with the drums that are really predominant. So we kind of we have the non-diegetic audio almost reminding us of what Frankie is giving up um, for, you know, in order to feed his habit, uh, which I thought was especially effective. Also, the cinematography by uh, director of photography, Sam Leavitt, I thought was especially interesting because this was one of the earliest Hollywood films to tackle drug addiction, uh, especially given the Hayes Code, right? Like this was a taboo subject you weren't really supposed to depict. And some of the more interesting moments, we see there's a lot of focus on 
zooming into Sinatra's eyes. So a couple of times he'll tie off his arm and it looks like they're kind of getting ready to inject him. And then it zooms in on his eyes so that you can presumably see the effect that it has on his body. Um, so part of this is also like they never could have gotten away with actually showing like an injection of drugs, but it's also an interesting forebearer to later drug films. Um, the, the big one I think can think of off the top of my head is Requiem for a dream where there are these little montage sequences of the injection and, you know, the, uh, uh, the spoon heating up that, that has the heroin and the pupils dilating and everything. We're kind of getting a very early version of that technique here. We've talked previously in this podcast about how a lot of modern films create tension and anxiety through using very quick cuts, right? To kind of put the viewer in multiple different perspectives uh, very rapidly. Uh, this film, since that wasn't really the style of the time, this film focuses a lot more on creating anxiety with, again, the zooms and a lot of camera movement. It's also a very mobile camera, as well as the music. So I was kind of wondering, did this film stress you out? Did these techniques work? And also, like, do you, do you enjoy films that kind of stress you out in this way? Yes, it definitely worked for me. I was having my champagne while I was watching, so maybe I was a little bit less stressed out than I should have been. <laughs> because as I think I've probably said on this podcast before, a lot of times I don't like watching stressful movies or TV shows because it's not enjoyable. It's just stressful and I have enough of that in my like real life. That said, stressful movies are often very good. One of our first movies that we talked about was The Housemaid, and that was one of those where I was just kind of like sitting there and like, oh my gosh, and kind of kind of reacting the way you would to a scary movie, even though it wasn't a scary movie, but, but just because you're so on edge. I actually wanted to back up a little bit because you were talking about how um, they zoom into Sinatra's eyes a lot. And I was thinking about how, I mean, this movie's not in color, but he was famously known as Old Blue Eyes and how that was just a very well-known part of his public image. Um, so it's kind of interesting how that image of his eyes is kind of turned on its head into kind of a, a, a negative, stressful indicator of what's going on in his character's life. Oh, that that's an interesting point. As opposed to being kind of... Um... Uh, seductive crooner, right? It's it's uh, dilating pupils of um, of someone who's who's very very ill. Yeah. Did did you, when you watched this movie, did you feel stressed out? I did. Um, so I guess I'll probably talk about it a little bit in the next segment. But I think a lot of what's happening with the subtext is pretty uninteresting and uh, to varying degrees upsetting to me. Uh, but Preminger movies, I think, are very interesting in terms of, of like technique and form. And so I think the jazz score, the cinematography, the zooms, uh, as well as the plotting and the kind of elaborate, like multiple different characters interacting in this really complex, like spider web of a plot that works for me super well. That, you know, digs its claws into me for the entire two hours. So let's get a little bit into the subtext. As I had mentioned earlier, there are a lot of um, 
distinctions between this film and the the novel that is its source material and kind of w- watching this coming away from it what i thought was really interesting was that the entire piece seems to be structured more or less specifically from Frankie's perspective to a greater degree than even a lot of films. We have that that kind of saying about how everyone is uh, the protagonist of their own movie, right? We all consider ourselves our own main character. And I think this is this is very much that because we can divide every factor in the film that is not Frankie into positive and negative elements as they relate to him. So negative elements, Zosh, who is kind of constantly trying to tear him down, is representative of his mistakes, his responsibility. Schweifka and Louie, who are representative of the things that got him sent to jail that are also tearing him down, tearing down his potential and, you know, their relation with with drugs and the card game. And then the positives... uh, being Molly, right, who represents the actual, you know, the actual woman he wants to be with. He, if he were happy and in a good place, he could be with her. Uh, Sparrow, who's kind of his good friend, his his lackey, who he still, in some ways, uses up and abandons, right? He's, he's this figure that makes maybe some of the underworld dealings bearable, but he has to get rid of in, in order to improve. Uh, and then obviously the drumming and the band audition, which represent these these immense moments of potential in his life. From all of these elements and characters, we never really get the sense. I I think maybe you disagree with this. We never really get the sense of any of these other characters having that much of a personal life away from Frankie. Well, I was kind of thinking that this movie does have kind of a Mary Sue element, even though Sinatra's character is flawed. So I think Mary Sue originated in as a term in fan fiction, but it's basically what you call a fictional character that's perfect and is kind of seen as the, the avatar of the author inserting themselves in some kind of idealized position um, in their plot. And like I said, in this movie, um, Frankie is far from perfect, but he still gets um, what you mentioned in your notes, his kind of, his wishes fulfilled, right? Everything kind of works out for him. Um, So in that way, it made me think of a Mary Sue character. And then talking about the end of the movie, if we had had an ending the way it was in the novel where Frankie had died... Maybe that would have been because I was thinking that was going to happen in the movie while I was watching. So I thought if that had happened, that would have been too predictable. But then I wasn't really satisfied with the ending of Zosh killing herself because that was kind of too easy. And I felt like something better would have been maybe a more vague ending that's not at one of those extremes. Well, so to clarify a little bit as well on the term Mary Sue, Mary Sue has been applied in a kind of distinctly misogynistic way more recently. Um, specifically, I believe the character of Ray in the uh, the newer Star Wars films, uh, episodes seven through nine, 
uh, a lot of people online will kind of use as, oh, she's a Mary Sue, she's overpowered, she's too strong, etc. These comments are typically made disingenuously because uh, the problem is not actually that the character is too strong. The problem is that there is a, a female character who is strong. Um, and I just want to emphasize that that's not, that's not the way that we're using this term right now. I didn't so, even know about that because I don't follow the Star Wars discourse. Yeah, it's um, it's really a bummer because again, I I think that's actually and to this derails us a little bit, but it's a term for a phenomenon that exists that I think in and of itself is really misogynistic, right? A lot of times with uh writers who perhaps don't know how exactly to write a female character. Uh, or are unsure because typically they're male, they're used to writing about people they believe to be like them, which are other males. Uh, they write a female character and they want to make them empowered and therefore they assign to them a kind of an absurd amount of strength and, and ability uh, that kind of renders them non-human, which I think is is similarly misogynistic right it's not it's not human they don't know how to write human characters but again in some ways the term mary sue was like co-opted by a lot of misogynists to implement an attack against uh, kind of any woman who has a leading role in a film no one ever criticized luke skywalker for being overpowered even though he had very little training as well and did a tremendous amount Anyway. Oh, it's funny because I, I usually feel like I've seen the Mary Sue label applied to female characters who are made by female authors. Um, I think really famously the Twilight series and what's that that kinky one that's like based on <laughs> Twilight? Fifty oh, Shades 50 of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> yeah. Well, even... <laughs> I mean, even then, I think that would be a tremendous misnomer because neither of those female characters... is especially competent or powerful they're just the object of a lot of male attention right 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 so i think that's kind of a different way i feel like i've seen it applied maybe that's misapplied but i feel where it's kind of like that actually this character can't do anything right but for whatever reason they're special because this male character has this profound interest in them or because maybe this magical power comes to them even though they can't do anything right like i see that a lot in um in in a lot of shoujo like young girls um manga and anime right where a lot of times the main like school girl school girl character is a klutz and doesn't do well at school and yet like Sailor Moon scenario or Fushigi Yugi scenario she gets like drawn into this magical world and like whatever and I I um I mean I don't know I I like the I like those stories though (laughs) (laughs) well I think um kind of uh as is typical for the internet internet we have a term that perhaps originally had one specific meaning was co-opted by whichever hate group uh and then became another and now it doesn't who knows what's going on anymore twitter anyway (laughs) (laughs) so i think it's it's interesting because you were talking about kind of the idea of frankie as more or less getting getting everything he wanted right like 
he had all of these struggles and again that that spider web of a plot that ultimately resolves wholesale so that he gets rid of his terrible nag of a wife uh he gets to be with a woman he really wants to be with presumably gets to pursue the drums all of these things come to him and so i think in order to get to dig down into this we can kind of talk about the director Otto Preminger himself so at the top of the episode I mentioned that he uh, notoriously had multiple affairs with different women while he was married to his first wife and again I think that would seem perhaps a tabloid-esque remark except as we're reading this film I think Preminger placed a lot of himself into the protagonist uh, specifically with his uh, relationships with the women in his life. Because first off, I think, uh, you know, one of the things we discover maybe halfway through the film is that Zash, who, though she is now faking her injury, was seriously injured at one point, it seems to me. She received that injury because of Frankie's kind of grotesquely irresponsible choice to drive drunk with her in the car. He's responsible for that. And now, as we're presented with it in the film, we see Frankie having gone to treatment and kind of just generally being like a hashtag good guy, just trying to get control of everything. We're given the perspective that, oh, well, Zosh just wants to control him and bring up this old stuff. But, you know, my thought, especially towards the end of the film, was like, well, no, but you seem to be responsible for a tremendous amount of this woman's turmoil. But to get your kind of clean resolution, she must die. She must, in in some sense, die for his sins, right? Like, uh, Louis wouldn't have been at the apartment if Frankie hadn't attacked him. And so, I don't know, my read of the film is that it's kind of Algren's source material, but reimagined from Preminger's perspective as who I, and this is kind of going out on a limb, but I suspect thought of himself as just being a good guy and misunderstood and really wanted to be with these other women and not his wife. And I think we get, we get that in a lot of films. I think Fellini kind of puts himself in, in a lot of his own pictures. This is not an odd thing for a director to do, but I was kind of wondering what you thought of films in which the, the auteur places themselves personally into it as one of the characters and how this kind of impacts its artistic merit. I think it's case by case which is a super boring way to answer the question. (laughs) I mean, um, and I don't think it's even necessarily bad to insert yourself into the plot. And I think both of us still liked this movie in spite of what I I think I can agree is Preminger putting himself in there. I think the problem here is that he kind of, he took interesting source material and in resolving it the way he did, maybe a little bit kind of detracts from any moral messaging there might have been there. And also kind of gives Frankie's character, gives him a pass when it might have been more satisfying. Because, it, and it's not even like it's portrayed where Frankie comes out the other end and he he seems conflicted, right? There's not really that aspect. Like, he, he mourns the fact that 
that Zosh has died, but then it's like, okay, now I can move on with my life. There's not even an element of conflict, which is kind of troubling. Oh, for sure. I mean, that, I guess maybe it didn't really surprise me that much, but like you get to the end of the film and Zosh's body is on the sidewalk and he and Molly and Sparrow and the cops all just decide that the entire affair is taken care of and no one is questioned and the body is still on the sidewalk, right? <laughs> like, and and like to and also to be like super super fair, um, she didn't kill Louis on purpose. It was an accident. But there, we we don't. Nobody gets to know that. Only we who who are watching the movie know that. You know. Sure. I mean, they do kind of have an instant. So she does not. Uh, if for plot clarification, she does not immediately die upon impact uh she throws herself out the window and everyone kind of comes rushing down and frankie rushes to her side and she um uh i can't remember what the exact exact exchange is but she says a couple of words to him and then she dies and so it's almost like the film is trying to give her a little bit of a tragic arc but we really don't see that because, like you said, like Frankie gets his resolution. Like he gets to be with Kim Nav- Novak. So uh, what's you know what's the big deal? It, it again uh, going back to when I said I appreciate this film's form but not its function. I, I feel like this is such a profoundly misogynistic ending that like he had to literally kill off his old wife to get like the new love who I guess he will kill off in the future for the next one. I don't know. (laughs) It kind of feels like when you watch a show or you read a book or you, you there's some story and there's that one character that you can't stand that's screwing everything up for everybody else. And you're, you're, you, the audience are watching it and you're just like, oh, why don't they just die? I can't stand that person. And then in this movie, the director actually went in and did that. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, but, but wait a minute. That doesn't really make good storytelling. I didn't know what. <laughs> well, so I think uh, the ending brings us nicely to a little bit of discussion about this film in terms of censorship, which is our topic of the month. First off, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Motion Picture Production Code or the Hayes Code. Uh, If you've been listening to these episodes, you've surely heard us reference this before because this regulatory sensorial body had a tremendous impact on the way that films were made in the United States for a very long time. Um, So first off, I wanted to mention the Supreme Court case, United States versus Paramount Pictures Incorporated. What this case did was effectively eliminate vertical integration. So vertical integration was a practice that movie studios did, which essentially meant that they were involved in kind of all stages of the movie business. So they were in production, they were in distribution, and they were in exhibition. So uh, I guess the equivalent would be like if Disney owned a chain of movie theaters as well right? They could program everything on those theaters to be only Disney pictures or strike up a deal with another film studio and and kind of maneuver it that way. But it was essentially seen as being a uh, 
monopolistic enterprise, right? You can't control that much of a single industry and allow for fair competition. So that was struck down. And what that meant is that foreign films were able to come into the United States much more easily, whereas before American studios could, you know, just refuse to exhibit them. Now they were no longer an exhibition. Theater chains or rather much more likely independent theaters could decide to exhibit uh, foreign films if they wanted to. And these foreign films were not regulated by the motion picture code, which meant that they could show a lot of the stuff that Hollywood studio films couldn't. So what this inevitably led to between between this and also the the kind of increased competition with the television, Hollywood was at a significant disadvantage because they were limited in the material they could show and they had all this new competition for kind of more salacious material in the box office and then people being able to, you know, stay at home and watch uh, Bonanza or Have Gun, Will Travel or what have you. And so as a result, a lot of these film studios started pushing back against the Hayes Code because they wanted to be able to show the more taboo material that audiences could see elsewhere. So Otto Preminger and United Artists decided to release this film before they received uh, the seal of approval that uh, signified that the film had gone through the Hayes Code process. It had been approved for exhibition. They started exhibiting it and made an appeal to the PCA, the Production Code Authority, which is essentially the sub-body beneath the MPAA that determined which films were allowed to be shown. So the Production Code Authority, upon receiving The Man with the Golden Arm, denied the film its seal, and United Artists appealed to the MPAA, which was, the again, the overseeing body over the Production Code Authority, uh, to have the decision reversed, and the MPAA upheld it. And as a result, United Artists resigned from the MPAA because... Um, the MPA, the Motion Picture Association of America, I believe it's it's just MPA now, but I'm not sure exactly how that changed. It was a body that operated in a lot of ways with the kind of apparent approval of studios, right? Kind of, I guess is this is a bad example, but like how President Donald Trump had a summit with leaders in technology. It was that kind of relationship, right? But again, this was a point at which the Hayes Code was kind of on the downfall. Hollywood ha was having to compete more, and so they were more willing to kind of throw off the censorship efforts of the U.S. government. And so United Artists resigned from the MPAA, and eventually, in 1961, the film was granted a seal of approval so that it could be redistributed into theaters and also so it could be sold as uh, television programming and it could be broadcast in that way. Uh, so anyway, I just thought I would mention that perhaps, even though I really enjoyed this film and a lot of the techniques they used, I think probably one of the most important elements of it was specifically how it interacted with the production code authority and kind of contributed to the downfall of the Hayes Code. I was wondering, so when you're talking about 
all this stuff kind of going on? Is this pretty much happening in the 50s? Uh, yeah, so late 50s and then the 60s, it's really, like I think we can see with the um, the PCA eventually giving uh, the seal to men with the golden arm in 61, like they were really hurting by that period. So did man with the golden arm, did it ever show in American theaters um, uh, when it when it first came out in 55? Uh, yeah, yeah, so it did. They released it before it got the seal of approval. So essentially that made United Artist liable for a pretty hefty fine. I think it was ah. potentially like $250,000. I don't know if that, that fine was ever actually enforced or if they had to pay it. But again, with all this competition, United Artists was willing to gamble just to get the thing in theaters. Because I kind of wondered, not that I have an encyclopedic knowledge of cinema or anything, I just kind of wondered whether this kind of censorship dust-up had anything to do with why maybe this movie... Like, I don't feel like this movie is so well-known, is it? Uh, I don't... I don't really know. So, it's not... Again, in the Preminger oeuvre... I don't think it's as well known as Anatomy of a Murder. I think that's his big one or even Advice and Consent. If this movie is known, I feel like it's most likely either for, again, the censorship dust up or because this was, I think it was Saul Bass's first opening credit sequence. So he did the opening credits for this film uh, with these kind of like, cut out figures that became really distinctive um, that Preminger would go on to use uh, and that also predominantly appeared in advertisements and opening segments for Hitchcock movies as well as um, Dario Argento used the style. I don't know if it was actually Saul Bass who did his films, but I think that's actually what this is most well known for. Well, I guess, did you have any final thoughts on this film? Uh, what were your big takeaways from it? I think it was solid. And now I can see that Sinatra could act if he was given the right script or the right direction or whatever. And I think it's always interesting to see drug use depicted kind of pre-1960s. It was good. I liked it. Yeah, I think um, I, I I would pretty broadly recommend this again. I, I think um, some of the messaging is pretty grotesque, uh, but it was super interesting doing the research for it and finding out a little bit more about Preminger. Again, I think it's just a really well-constructed film, and uh, the, the entire time I was pretty absorbed in it. Mm-hmm. Definitely worth watching, I think. Okay. So I'd like to mention my sources for this week. Uh, first off, the article Nelson Algren's Street Cred by Jonathan D., which appeared in The New Yorker. Also, the article The Man with the Golden Arm, 1956 by Lang Thompson, which appeared on the Turner Classic Movies website, TCM. And the similarly titled article The Man with the Golden Arm by Rachel Bloom, which appeared in Senses of Cinema. And as always, Wikipedia was a huge help. Uh, if you want to catch up with us on social media, we are Mayday Matinee on Twitter. 
maybe today matinee on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to send us an email, we are maybe today matinee at gmail.com. If you want to support us and help the show grow, we are maybe today matinee on Patreon, kind of maybe today matinee on everything. And next week, we will be discussing the 1932 film Scarface. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this is Maybe Today Matinee.